Father God, we thank you for this morning. We gather as people from different backgrounds, different nations, different life experiences, different things that have been going on this week. But we all have one thing in common. We need Jesus. We need to hear your voice now as we study your word together. Please, Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, would you teach us and equip us and change us so we can trust in Jesus and live for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for most of the last couple of months this term, we've been looking at this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' mouth-watering manifesto. And the words that we've been listening to, and especially this morning, are are quite easy to to miss the power that is in them, because they're they're quite well known, aren't they? These words have entered our language. So today we heard the narrow way. The King James Version of these verses talks about the straight gate and the narrow way. We get that phrase, getting back onto the straight and narrow. Uh, We heard about wolves in sheep's clothing. And we heard about the wise man who built his house on the rock. Anyone who's been through Sunday school or school assemblies in England immediately thinks about the songs about the rain coming down and the floods coming up and the house on the sand went... Went what? Splat. It's familiar to some of us. And yet... But you can't quite bring yourselves to say that, can you? We need to be careful, don't we, not to miss the shocking and the urgent message that Jesus is giving us here. Remember who Jesus is as he speaks these words. You know, we think of him, we we think, oh, this is Jesus, this is Jesus Christ, this is the Son of God. Well, it's it's no surprise that he should issue such challenging words in his sermon to these crowds. But that wouldn't have been how these words were first heard. Think think of it. This is Jesus the outsider. This is Jesus the northerner, in fact, in Israel, coming to the capital city with an accent that betrays that he's not from around here with this ragtag group of followers, of fishermen, a group of rough lads, really, just easy to belittle, easy to ignore, nothing to see here. What are these guys listening to this guy on on a hillside? And that's how the sermon began back in chapter 5, verse 1, a talk to his followers. Just a small group gathered there. But by the end, at the end of the reading, did you see verse 28? Something surprising. Actually, as he's been talking, the crowds have gathered. They've been drawn into this extraordinary, unexpectedly authoritative teaching, which challenges the received wisdom of the religious teachers of the day. And now in these verses, as Jesus finishes, he does something even more controversial. He talks first about a day. Did you see that verse 22 uh, there in the middle? He talks about a day that is coming. What's going to happen on that day? Well, he describes it in various different ways. He calls it, verse 13, a day of destruction. Verse 19, a day of fire. He's talking about a day of division, where mankind will divide into two groups. And perhaps most controversially of all, the definition of who belongs in each of those groups 
centres around him, the northerner from Nazareth, the outsider. He is the centre of time and eternity and the judge who decides between heaven and hell. Now, plenty of people find this hard to stomach or, or assume that it just isn't possible that Jesus would have used such stark language in warning people. Yeah, surely Jesus was all about love. And we sometimes say the same kind of thing today. Well, you, you don't want to scare people into God's kingdom. You know, shouldn't we be emphasising God's love rather than his judgment? Well, of course, Jesus and the rest of the Bible give plenty of positive reasons to turn from our sin and follow Jesus. But that doesn't stop Jesus from spelling out here some clear warnings about the day that is coming. In fact, if what he's warning here is true, is it not loving for him to do this? Would it not be unloving for him to fail to do this? I once found myself with a screwdriver in my hands, taking the back off my computer to try and find out why it had just gone bang and was refusing to turn on. I had a vague kind of inkling, it might be something to do with the power supply inside the computer. Better have a look. What I found when I took the lid off was a big label attached to the power supply. It said, warning, danger of death. High voltages may be present to be repaired by qualified personnel only. Now, one thing was clear. I am not qualified personnel. But when you see a sticker like that, you don't think, oh, that's a bit unloving. It's a bit blunt to put things so sort of clearly and and, and offensively in that way. I don't want want to think about death when I take the back of my computer off. Well, actually, no, it's there for a reason, isn't it? It's there because they really don't want you to go any further and they want you to know the consequences if you do. Put the screwdriver away. Take it to PC World if you dare. There's a place for warning. That is what Jesus is doing here. So the question for us then is, how can I be part of Jesus' kingdom on that day? How can I know that I will be part of that kingdom then? So we can see the three things that he says in these verses. First, choose the narrow path, verses 13 to 14. Choose the narrow path. Because there are two paths, says Jesus. One leads to life, the other leads to destruction. But the thing is, these two paths aren't necessarily what we might think they would be. You know, what might people think the two paths might be? Instinctively, we might go for something like the bad path and the good path. The path of morality versus the path of immorality. The path of unrighteousness versus the path, perhaps, of self-righteousness. As if Jesus' message is, come on, pull your socks up, you've got to try harder at this religion thing. And if you do that, well then maybe you deserve to be on this narrow way that leads to life. But if you've been here over the last few weeks, are those the two ways that we've seen outlined in the sermon so far? Is that what we've seen? Keep the rules, tick the boxes, and if you do enough, you'll get in? Well, of course, actually, that's the opposite of what Jesus has been saying. 
On the one hand, the standard is perfection. We saw that at the the last verse of chapter 5. Be perfect, Jesus says. But on the other hand, this is not something you can do in your own strength. See, those who think that they can do it in their own strength end up walking the path of self-righteous hypocrisy. Because the standard always gets reduced to something more achievable. For those in Jesus' day, the law had been deflated, as we've seen, so that the boxes could be ticked and God could be kept at arm's length. But by contrast, those who are blessed in the kingdom are the poor in spirit. They are the meek. Those who realise their inadequacy, those who renounce self-sufficiency and come to Jesus in dependence and trust. So the two roads, the two ways, what are they then? They are self-sufficiency on the one hand and dependence on the other. Dependence not on ourselves, but on Jesus. Look, look at how Jesus describes the difference between these two paths. One is wide and the other is narrow. Well, why is the road of self-sufficiency, self-righteousness wide? Well, it's wide because it's easy to travel on it. It's the popular road. It's the road where you will get lots of encouragement from the world around you that you are going the right way because, actually, in the end, your values aren't that much different from theirs. That is how self-righteousness works, as we saw last week. You don't have to be Christian to suffer from self-righteousness. Actually, everybody can suffer from it. See, the world around us expects our message to be one of self-betterment. They may not be all that much in- all, that, all that interested in it, but that's what they kind of expect us to be saying if we're Christians. And that's because they can't really see that, that what we're offering is, is really all that different from what they think they have already. They, they, they look and see, oh, well, oh, yes, you, you religious people, well, yeah, yeah you're, you're just sort of doing what, what we do, really. You have a code of rules. Oh, so do we. It's just that I don't really feel that I need church to justify that code of rules that I sort of keep. You know, I can learn about morality from every world faith, from many non-religious people too. I don't see what's so different about you. If all you're doing is your code of rules, well, we're doing a code of rules too. But that is the broad way. And what happens if you're on that broad path is that you go on looking for more and more affirmation from the world around you. And, and, and they will give it to you, if that's what you're looking for, because they understand rule-keeping. It makes sense. And, and the broad path, the broad way, will begin to look more and more like the world until all sense of salt and light is lost, and you can't tell the difference between the two. And I fear that that may be happening in much of the contemporary debates in the Church of England at the moment. And yet Jesus warns the broad way, the easy way, the way that makes the world speak well of you, if you like, that is the way to destruction. You may win acceptance now, you may get to play with the great and the good in society, many enter through this gate, this path, says Jesus, but where are you heading? By contrast, the narrow road with its small gate is completely different. The narrow way is the way that says, this kingdom life is totally beyond my grasp. I can't do this by myself. I don't belong here. Naturally, I never will. I need a saviour 
who has walked the path of this perfect righteousness, who's lived the perfect standards, who can take me on this path to life. Because in the end, who is the gate? Who is the way? Well, it's Jesus. He is the gate. He is the way to his Father. We go through him by his death. We go depending totally not on ourselves and our ability to better ourselves, but on him and his death for us. So are we walking the narrow path? It's a life of confession, of repentance, of increasing awareness of our need for a saviour, of grateful reliance, not on ourselves, but on him. Few find this path, says Jesus. Well, that's because it's counterintuitive. It's not the way that the loudest voices in the world around us will point us to. I notice this sometimes uh, in the past when I've done school assemblies in, in places. Sometimes you go in as a visitor and you go and do an assembly that tries, and you try and say as clearly as possible to, to the people there, we can't make ourselves right with God, we need to trust in Jesus. And then the teacher stands up at the end and you get a little epilogue uh, after what you said. And they say, thank you very much, Tom, for coming in this morning and reminding us that it's really important to try hard to be nice to, get to each other today. So that is the default assumption is, we, whatever the vicar was saying, it must have been that, because that is what Christianity is. And, but that is the broad way, that is the broad path, when you sum up Christianity just as being nice to each other. It is, it is not fundamentally about that, isn't it? Now, we, we may well find, if we walk that path, that we grow actually more aware of our sin, if we're walking the narrow path. We grow more aware of our sin, not less. We grow more. Because that, and that can be unnerving because <clears throat> on, the, on the broad path of that happened, that would be bad news because the broad path is all about bettering yourself. And, and if, you, if you're becoming more aware of your sin, well, you're, you must be failing because you're not becoming better. But on the narrow path, where we're, we're depending on Jesus, as we become more aware of the holiness of God, actually we will inevitably become more aware of our sin. So what does that mean? Well, it means don't be discouraged if you feel like the battle is getting harder and not easier. See, that is actually normal in the Christian life. A life of depending on Jesus every step of the way won't feel like it's getting easier every day. It will feel like it's getting harder every day because we will become more and more conscious through our life of how much we need to depend on on him. And the solution then is not just to try harder to kind of wield the blunt weapons of new resolutions and turning over a new leaf. The solution is to keep resting in Jesus, to keep going back to him, to depend on him daily. Choose the narrow path. That is the way to life. Then secondly, Jesus says, listen to fruitful teachers. Listen to fruitful teachers. If, if the broad way is the popular way, the one that the world favours naturally, then it really matters who you listen to as you seek to stick with the narrow way. Watch out for false prophets, Jesus says. They have sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ferocious wolves. What an image that is. We often think that the, that the big problem that Christians face is kind of out there in the world. It, it, it's, you might say it's sharks out there lurking beneath the water in the ocean. Watch out for the sharks, we say to each other. Don't get too comfortable out there in the world, in the water. 
And because of that danger that we perceive out there, we think, well, maybe it's better if we just huddle here with the flock. Stay out of the world. Stay out of the water. Stay away from the sharks. Then you'll be safe because you're not engaging with that. You're out of that. So you'll be okay if you stay away from that. And many Christians over the centuries have done that. And we are tempted to do that today. And the net result is churches and Christians with no meaningful relationships with non-Christians in the world. And we, we thought about that when we thought about salt and light a few weeks ago. But actually Jesus is saying the real danger for Christians, according to him, is not sharks out there in the world, but it's wolves right here in the flock. See, it's no good kind of gathering the sheep into the pen and bolting the door lock so no one can get in if actually one of them is a wolf. If we think merely staying out of the world will somehow keep us safe, think again. Watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus says. Remember the Sermon on the Mount has been all about how it's the heart that matters, not just outward appearances. And it's the same when choosing your teacher, who you're going to listen to. Now, North London's the kind of place where people come and go regularly. Many here will uh, find themselves moving on elsewhere in the next few years, I guess. What are you going to look for in a new church? So Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. The message that is preached matters. The thing is, false prophets don't wave a flag saying, I'm a false teacher. They don't do that. They don't have a badge that says, good morning, my name is Tom and I'm a false teacher. That's not, that's not how it works, is it? What does their ferocious, ravenous attack look like? Well, it just looks like a sermon. It looks like a Bible study. It looks like a children's talk. It looks like a video on YouTube, on the God channel, or a Christian book. But here's the interesting thing about what Jesus says, and actually this is deeply challenging, not just to people like me who stand up here and preach sermons, but to any of us who are involved in any kind of teaching ministry in Sunday school or in small groups or or in other things. See, the way you tell a false prophet, Jesus says, is not actually by the content of what they say. It's not, you don't have to closely examine the words, although you you do need to do it. It's not a bad place to start, but it's more than that. What does Jesus say is the mark of it? It is what they do. It is their their fruit, it is their lives, it is their lifestyle. And a teaching ministry that is not matched by a life that honours Jesus is not one you should seek to live under. Now, it's deeply challenging, obviously, for me to stand here and say that. But any of us who teach are sinners. Any of us who teach are not perfect. We don't consistently produce good fruit, if we're honest. We don't do so perfectly. What what does this mean then? Well, once again, the kingdom life is not about achieving that 100% standard through our own efforts here and now, but it's about living a life of dependence, of throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. It is a life of relationship, in other words. See, the false prophet won't do that. It will all be for show. There will be no real relationship with our Father in heaven. So watch out, Jesus says. If we want to stay on the narrow path that leads to life on that day when Jesus returns, it matters who we listen to. And then thirdly, do what Jesus says. 
verses 21 to 29. Choose a narrow path. Listen to fruitful teachers. Do what Jesus says. Now, why does Jesus suddenly say these startling words about those who say to him, Lord, Lord, but who won't enter the kingdom of heaven? He's he's following on the thought about fruit. He's, He's kind of saying, well, what kind of fruit is genuine? So verse 22, if you look, is the kind of genuine fruit, is it wildly impressive, ecstatic experiences? Actually, well, that's not necessarily genuine fruit, according to Jesus. Or it's not the definition of it. Miracles and driving out demons, well, it's outwardly impressive, certainly. But so often it only goes skin deep. Actually, what matters is not the outward appearance, but the heart. Who are the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, only the one who does the will of my Father, says Jesus. And he has these famous images of two houses, two foundations. Now again, just just look closely, because I think we so easily assume he's saying something here, and he's saying something more subtle than that. Have a look. What are those foundations that he says that the two houses are built on? Because we, we might think it's a contrast between kind of building on Jesus and building on yourself, building on worldly idols. But have a look, it's it's something more than that, isn't it? Look at what he says. The one who builds on a rock, verse 24, is, what is it? It's the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. And who is the foolish one who builds on sand and whose house comes crashing down? What is the difference? Well, I find this really striking as I look at this. It's it's not a person who runs from God and does their own thing and and ignores Jesus. Well, of course, the house built on that foundation will come crashing down. But that isn't what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about those who do hear his words, but then don't put them into practice. See, with both the rock and the sand, people are hearing his words. But only with the rock are they being put into practice. Listening is not enough. We need to do what Jesus says. But again, as we hear that, we might think, well, okay, but doesn't it, isn't it sort of coming back onto us needing to do stuff to make God accept us? Is it sort of self-righteous legalism by the back door? You know, is, it, is it that when all is said and done, what really matters is jolly well keeping the laws, keeping the rules? Well, think about what Jesus has said in this mouth-watering manifesto. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. See, doing what Jesus says ultimately means listening to him by throwing ourselves on his mercy. That is what he asks us to do. And from that will flow a life lived for him, this kingdom life. But it always begins with dependence on him, which is more than just hearing, isn't it? Now, I wonder if we need to to hear that, particularly in a church like ours that values the teaching of God's word. Because this is actually more than thinking, well, that was a great sermon, or or maybe not. This is more than just taking notes, that's a great thing to do. Because you can write down everything the preacher says, but go home unchanged in your heart. This is more than listening to podcasts of well-known preachers. This is more than chalking up lists of great Christian books that we've read. Although all those things are great. This is hearing and then doing. Look at how Matthew ends the chapter, verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, 
the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So as we come to an end, we've heard this Sermon on the Mount over the last term. Maybe we've been struck by some of the amazing things that Jesus says. Well, so were the crowds who first heard this teaching. But it's as if Matthew is saying, they were amazed, but what difference is it going to make for them? It's not those who are amazed at Jesus' teaching that enter the kingdom. You don't just have to be amazed at it. It's those who respond by listening and doing it. In other words, by responding in faith and dependence on him, throwing themselves on his mercy. It's perfectly possible to be here in church every week, to hang around with other Christians, to, to live a respectable life in the eyes of society and those around us, And yet, it's possible to do all those things and yet be somebody who's never thrown ourselves on God's mercy. And if that is you, well, let me encourage you to consider what it is that's holding you back from doing that. Is it maybe lack of information about what that involves? We can help with that at St. John's. We regularly run courses that help with that. We'll be meeting this Wednesday evening for the next instalment of our identity course, which anyone is free to join. Come and talk to me about that. But for some in that position, though, I I know from personal experience, it may not be a lack of information. It may rather be a desire to hold on to the fact that actually, come on, things aren't really all that bad. There isn't really a problem between me and God. I don't really need Jesus. Well, we need to hear these warnings of Jesus this morning. There are only two paths, two roads, One of self-reliance, self-dependence, which ends in destruction. One of Jesus' reliance, Jesus' dependence, which leads to life. So if you want to take that path today, or if you want to continue on that path, let me help you do that now as we pray. Let's pray. Father, as we have sat at the feet of Jesus in these chapters, we acknowledge how each of us in different ways fails to live up to this perfect standard. None of us can point to how we are achieving this extraordinary life that he lays out for us here. Father, we want to be people who build our lives on the rock of depending on Jesus and doing what he says. In our own strength, we mess up. But depending on Jesus, we know that this is a life that he has lived. He broke none of these promises in his manifesto for the kingdom. He kept each one of them. And as he did that, it led him to die on the cross in our place. And so today, we come to you. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time, we come meekly acknowledging that we are poor in spirit. Mourning our sin. 
we come to throw ourselves on Jesus' mercy. To depend on him. To walk, to take that narrow path that leads to life. No step of that path can be done in our own strength. We depend on Jesus. Help us each day to live with that dependence on him. Amen.